This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein the Go-Go. It's a science show. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through till 11 o'clock. We're going to take you through now until Edith takes over at noon for lunch. I'm joined in the studio by Dr. Ray. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You well? I am, thank you. For a change. Sounding a bit deeper than yeah, normal yeah. there. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Maybe something with the panel. Dr. Jen? Hi, Dr. Shane. <laughs> <laughs> predictable. So yep. couldn't resist. You well? I'm always predictable. You know me well enough. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm excessively well, actually. Excessively? Yeah. That's not like you. You're normally you sleep mean? deprived. Yeah, but I've learnt, uh, been sleep deprived for so many years. No, yeah. I'm, life's good. Uh, now, uh, we are going to cross to our weather bureau girl, Andrea, uh, shortly. So let's get into some news, and then we'll try and give her a call. She's up somewhere um, chasing cyclones in Brisbane, I think. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Mm. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Yeah. All right, what do you got for us, Dr. Jen? Well, I thought, you know, we, we're deciding to focus a bit on climate change and that sort of thing on the show this year, and I found an interesting paper that came out this week. So one of the um, ideas that's been talked about a lot is that as the climate changes, we're going to see lots more diseases caused by um, parasites, other pathogens. So pathogens are just disease-causing organisms, so, you know, whether you want to talk about bacteria or whatever it is. So the idea is that as the climate changes and animals move around more, you're going to have a higher risk of um, diseases appearing in species that they've never been in before because, you know, an animal's got a parasite in it, it starts to live somewhere else as the temperature changes, the rainfall changes, and you're going to end up with, you know, a parasite potentially being able to infect a new species. Mm. But that doesn't really fit with what we've been learning, you know, the, the kind of overwhelming idea about what we call co-evolution, which is where two different species are evolving kind of in parallel, is that that shouldn't happen. So if anyone who's learned any basic biology would have been taught that any parasite is incredibly specialised. It's spent, you know, some ridiculous number of years whether it's millions of years or whatever living in a particular host animal and it's become very specialized to suit that particular host and it actually would find it quite difficult to suddenly jump into another species so i don't know any basic biology and i have to say i find that idea quite surprising well that's kind of the argument that you become very specialized for your particular lifestyle i guess and that's what parasites are very good at because parasites are very good at at getting what they need out of a particular body but not killing you because if they kill you then they Mm -hmm. don't have their home anymore so the idea is that parasites Parasites are very specialised. Um, but some research came out this week from the University of Toronto and also the US Department of Agriculture and um, some work done both in the tropics and in the Arctic and they found that there were heaps of parasites that weren't actually living in their original host at all. There were heaps of parasites that were jumping around between lots of different species and living in multiple species at the same time. They said, oh, this isn't exactly kind of what we thought was meant to be the case and they sort of looked at the you know, the long-term natural history looking back across multiple glacial ages and found that that's in fact the case. Parasites have been infecting multiple different species for you know, millions and millions of years so climate change is going to, yes, result in lots more contact between different species living in different places, and we can expect heaps of parasites to jump around, so we are going to see lots more diseases. Now, they're not predicting some massive, um, you know, new super virus that's going to kill us all, but they are saying that we, we can expect to see more diseases in more places, more parasites jumping between different species, which obviously is going to have costs associated with it for human health, um, agricultural, um, you know, what's going on in agriculture, crops, all that sort of stuff. So the idea that parasites are 
incredibly specialised didn't hold true where they were working in the Arctic and the tropics. Throw out those textbooks. Yeah, and expect lots Mm. more disease in years to come. In a a naive comment about, in a parallel to ecology, people always say, are always surprised when they introduce a species into a new area, examples the cane toad, things like that, where they think it's going to do one thing and instead it fills an entirely different niche and becomes detrimental to where it was brought in. So if toads can adapt, why can't parasites? I yeah. Mean, you know, I, I would think if you give it a new environment, it, it's going to find its strengths. It mm. may not work quite as well. Kill, kill a few kill a few of its hosts, but then over time evolve. Yeah, well, I guess the argument there is that something like a cane toad and other animals that become really invasive tend to be very general. So they're not what's okay. called generalist. They tend to be able to kind of thrive anywhere, mm. whereas the argument is that parasites haven't been considered to okay. be generalist. But right. maybe the argument is that they are a bit more generalist than, than we thought. We thought. Mm. Interesting. Now, let's see if we can get uh, our weather girl, Andrea, on the phone. Um, she is up... Uh, north somewhere let me just check give her a call here assuming i'm dialing the right number with my left hand because i'm right-handed uh, let's see here we go all right we'll see if we can get there folks and, and get a bit of an update on what's going up north there's quite a lot of concentration on dr shane's face when he was <laughs> dialing. i was impressed good morning andrea good morning how are you up there um it's very humid up here, so I'm feeling a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> there are three very bad things in descending order that have happened this weekend. One, a lot, there's been a lot of damage and a lot of uh, a lot of uh, you know serious weather up there north. Um, the secondary issues that uh, flowed down to us from that is that you're not in the studio, pretty bad. And mm-hmm. second, we didn't get to watch the cricket yesterday. Um, I know. We yeah. were talking to them all day, and we really thought. It would clear sort of yeah. middle afternoon and they'd get some drying and that they'd go ahead with it. They pulled the pin. So. Uh, just didn't happen. Now, now, give us an idea of what's gone on because uh, some people may not have seen this, but there were two quite significant cyclones that were hanging around the north of Australia this week and have impacted the coastline, haven't they? Yeah, that's right. It's actually um, unprecedented that we've had two... Uh, severe tropical cyclones, which is Category 3 or above, mm-hmm. um, making landfall within 24 hours of each other in Australia. So it's been a, a bit of a historical event, actually. Um, we've, I guess, think we've probably been lucky in both cases that um, they haven't crossed the coast in really highly populated areas. I mean, you know, the, the coast of Queensland, um, obviously, there there have been has been quite a bit of damage uh, to homes and um, buildings around that area. Um, there's been no loss of life, which is, you know, obviously the the most important thing Um, but yeah it's been a really interesting week that's for sure yeah and in terms of just give us an idea when when you talk about these category five ones i mean the classification is based on wind speed is that right that's right so we're looking at above 280 kilometer an hour wind um basically right around the core um for category five so uh yeah very strong um and and that's what um made landfall uh, along the, the Queensland coast just the other day. I mean, we actually only had the highest recorded wind gust was 207 kilometres an hour, I think, but um, some of the automatic weather stations, uh, you know, really struggled in the um, with the strong winds. We often find, you know, we'll have a really strong wind gust and then something will happen to the automatic weather station, so we don't always get quite those really high... Um, those high peaks but um, yeah it's been a very a uh, lot of rainfall um, parts of the um, I guess 
the back of the um, Sunshine Coast do have experienced rainfalls uh, above 500 millimetres in just 24 hours. So, wow. yeah, it's been um, it's been really intense rainfall, and we've seen some major flooding um, through parts of the Wide Bay Burnett area. Um, but uh, yeah, other than that, um, the, the main area of the rain has now moved off the coast, so we're expecting the um, the rivers to start to recede very slowly mm-hmm. throughout today. Now, just to put that in perspective, and you may not know this figure off the top of your head, but 500 millimetres of rainfall, what, what is approximately Melbourne's rainfall for the year? Yeah, good question. I can't remember it off the top of my head, but I know that um, the, the places that have experienced that high rainfall total, that's double what they'd normally see in a, an average February. Mm-hmm. So incredibly significant. Um, but yeah, I just can't remember that rainfall figure off the top of my head. No, no, I know that, that was a tough one. Um, in, in terms of the, um, the sort of water temperatures and so forth, I mean, you have to have particularly high temperatures in the water, you know, certain temperatures in the water to actually drive these, to fuel these um, cyclones, don't you? Yeah, that's right. So 26 degrees is usually what the type of um, sea surface temperature would expect, 27, uh, 26 or above, yep. um, is what we'd expect to see. So um, the, the ex-tropical cyclone Marsha is actually now just sitting off the coast of, um, of the Gold Coast, basically. Um, we are expecting it to intensify um, over the next sort of 24 hours, but um, not to those sort of cyclone um, conditions, basically because we don't have that really warm water. Waters are still very warm on the Gold Coast, but just not um, quite at that um, those levels needed for it to spin up into a proper cyclone. Mm. Now, Andrea, we're going to let you go because we know you're uh, you're very busy up there and um, sorry that you had to zip up there on Friday night, um, but we will see you back in the studio sometime soon. Yeah, sounds good. All right. You stay safe up there and we will talk to you soon. That was Andrea Peace from uh, the Bureau of Meteorology, one of our uh, very, very, very talented um communicators of meteorology actually that comes on the show quite regularly it's great to hear from her talking rainfall up there i had a friend who sent around a video his kids have got a kayak for christmas and yesterday that they could just kayak in the back garden there was enough water that they were kayaking around their oh, garden that's scary, isn't it? that's scary uh now let's move on dr ray what do you got for us uh dr shane um this is kind of an interesting news story that was in a published paper i couldn't i only found one press release on it but i actually did look up the uh, Energy Summit, and, and it was listed there. This was last week at the ARPA, so I think that's Army Research in the U.S., Energy Innovation Summit. One of the companies that was there had a very interesting showcase, and the company is called Princeton Optotronics. So you really still don't know, okay, it's going to be something with optics, and it is, but it's odd. They showcased that last November they ran an engine for a week in Chicago in a test lab, but the engine did not use spark plugs, standard combustion engine. It did not use spark plugs. It used lasers to actually combust the fuel in the chamber. That's cool. And, mm, uh, really that, cool. That, that was pretty interesting. Now, now, people have been talking about, oh, we should replace spark plugs with lasers for years. Toyota's mm. said, oh, we could. In 2011, there was some great press about it. But um, nobody's actually gotten on a laser ignition system into and run an engine at high temperatures with the timing of an engine. And interestingly, people may not know this, but lasers are fantastic at being pulsed. So for engine timing, they're actually more efficient and better suited than a spark plug mm-hmm. is and one, one way to think think about that is if you if you have a laser with sort of an average energy 
and then you compress all of that energy into a very small timed pulse, so one big spurt, then you can get very high temperatures yeah. in very small spaces, which is you, you can do you very easily with lasers. I mean, so, people do this quite commonly. But it, it was 27% more f- combu- efficient in the combustion than a regular spark plug. Now, that's a huge jump. Yeah. And I was sitting there going, why? And then I read, I went, oh, that's right. Because if everybody, I don't know, does, in high school, did you learn how engines worked? I know we had that in, like, shop class. No, it was it was uh, Hill's hoist to see Yeah, I got yeah. no idea. Anyway, so <laughs> the interesting thing about so, so of, of course, the pistons on one end of the cylindrical chamber, on the other end is the spark plug and the fuel inlets, or they're sprayed in by fuel injection now. But the, the funny thing is, this, when the spark plug goes off, it actually burns from the top of the chamber mm. towards the piston. Lasers, because it's a laser beam and you can focus it and shoot it further in, actually causes the combustion from the middle of the chamber, and that's where the efficiency comes. And it's more efficient. Uh, the exhaust characteristics are better. And um, the and hopefully, you know, I mean, they've made these laser ignition systems. I don't know how many years till we actually see it in a car, but... Um, I'm hopeful, you know, if you've got something that can run in an engine, that's a pretty strong prototype yeah. already. I know. And I want to be able to go into a shop and say, I need a new laser. Not the spark plugs, a laser. <laughs> That'd be cool. Um, very interesting stuff. Well, I mean, they've been using lasers to try and initiate fusion uh, experiments yeah. uh, for quite a few years now. So you'd think if they can mimic the characteristics of the sun, <laughs> you could start a car, you know, run a car engine yeah. off uh, yeah. Yeah, and I would like to point out at least one of the times I said laser, I did the Doctor Evil yeah, laser. Did. Of course, you have to. Uh, it goes without saying. It's like one million dollars. <laughs> um, now, some interesting uh, research came out this week with regards to sunburn, and this came from a biophysicist at Yale named Douglas Brash, and he's been looking at the damage that UV rays essentially do to your DNA um, when when you're burnt. And there was always has always been this idea that you know while you're in your sun in the sun, the UV rays are damaging your DNA. They cause these kinks in your DNA, and that can cause mutations and so forth later, which can lead to cancer. So you know the idea is you know cover up where you can. Now what uh, what he's since found is. It's not just while you're in the sun. Um, this damaging sort of effect that that you know is so problematic actually continues to occur for some time after you leave the sun. So, what this means? It sounds bad. It sounds like oh, you know, um, I was in the sun for half an hour and it kept going for 20 minutes afterwards. But what it does mean is that there's the possibility that you could then potentially, using a sort of you know almost after the after the incident, you know, medication, you might be able to reduce the damage um, by applying an appropriate cream or something at Mm. that time. So it sort of just changes the way we think about this. I mean, all we normally think about is, you know, stopping the sun from hitting us while we're in it. But there there could be a scenario as well as if you don't do that, your exposure time is a lot greater than you, or the potential damage time is a lot greater than you thought it was, which is is something we will have to look into. Well, well, I found interesting the comment about a, a sunscreen after Exposure yeah. to sunscreen cream as a possibility that included antioxidants to scavenge free radicals. Because current sunscreen formulations, the better ones, actually already have that in there. Mm. Mm. They do for different reasons, for different actually. Reasons, yeah. but, uh, well, particle sunscreens, um, they're actually normally encapsulated in a, like a silica coating on the outside. And, and that's because the particles themselves, you know, Zinc oxide is also used in solar cells. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, but the the little bit of antioxidant coverage there, I just wonder, could you just dump more in and have that sunscreen yeah. be effective for before and after? Or Although, maybe just put it on after you go inside. Yeah. Although yeah. I, I, I can't see <laughs> the personal care stinks. product industry if if they yeah. see this as a niche to let it go by. Oh yeah, yeah. It'll it'll come out. It'll be there.
Now, we are joined in the studio by our uh, first guest today. It's Ben Sanders. He's from Zoos Victoria. He's the Wildlife Conservation Officer there. Welcome, Ben. Good morning. Now, you work on the Eastern Barred Bandicoot, and uh, I think before we dive into all the issues around this, you should tell us a little bit about it. You brought in a stuffed one. Yeah. <laughs> or, not not or, a stuffed one, a toy one. A toy one. <laughs> toy one. <laughs> no uh, taxidermy here. No taxidermy. Um, tell us a bit about this little guy. What, I mean, where do we find it? Um, what you know, was it like? Well, it, he's got actually a pretty interesting story, uh, the Eastern Barred Bandicoot. So he's a, a Victorian species, mm-hmm. once found right across Victoria's grasslands all the way from Melbourne all the way into South Australia, uh, so widespread. Unfortunately, you can't find this guy in the wild at all anymore, um, and probably pretty much all of all of your listeners will know why due to foxes. Mm. Um, so foxes were not a good not a good um, mix for this guy, and he was wiped out completely. So. Uh, they were pretty much monitored almost to extinction, so okay. to only around 60 animals uh, living in Hamilton, living in the tip in Hamilton amongst oh, wrecked yeah. cars. Wow. Uh, they were rescued in the early 90s and taken to Melbourne Zoo, and from there, every eastern barred bandicoot can be traced back to that population. So wow. now they only exist within fences um, and at the zoos, at mm. our zoos. Yeah. And how many have we got now? So now there's around 400. 400. Yeah. And is that, um, I mean, one of the things I always find when we get to these small populations, and as you say, confined in, in physically, physically space um is is that a genetically viable population or is there going to be a problem in you know a few generations yeah. where this doesn't work it's something that we're keeping a really close eye on so we so we have um experts in those fields uh we have geneticists involved um te- constantly testing the animals the good thing is is that uh a subspecies of the bandicoot lives in tasmania mm-hmm. so if genetics do become a problem we can always introduce some of those individuals okay. and boost the genetic diversity but at the moment um uh, it's it's looking good. It's, it's looking still good. looking good. Yeah. yeah. Four, I mean, four hundred sounds like a good number. Yeah. I mean, if they're they're breathing well and, yeah. and so forth. Um, now, I mean, tell us a bit about their personalities. Though. I mean, what, what what are they like? I mean, they're, they're small little guys. Yeah, they're small yeah. little guys, and they're really shy. They um they're really really shy little animals. They even the you know like I was chatting to some of the keepers that look after these guys at the zoo the other day, and they say you know we look after them when we hardly ever see them. <laughs> you know, like they yeah. they they bring their food into them, and they and they because they're nocturnal. Yep. You know, they'll hardly ever see them. So they're really shy little critters. They've got a, a large nose, so my plush toy, you know, has a large nose, but these guys have larger nose that they use as a shovel. So they basically use that right. to dig amongst the leaf litter, look for insects, look for, you know, roots and things like that that they can eat. Um, but, you know, like that, they are a shy little critter and they, they haven't got the best, unfortunately, they haven't got the best uh, predator avoidance awareness, um, you know, avoidance behaviours or awareness because, you know, they haven't, mm, they you know, they haven't have lived it. in a landscape yeah, yeah, yeah. and evolved with with animals like foxes. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I must say though, I, I, I'd find it uh, difficult to imagine how a small little furry creature like this could have a predator awareness system yes. that keeps it away from a big yes. fox tearing yes. down. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like a jelly bean in a bus. Yeah, it's like you know, if, if you're in the way, you're in the way. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, they're pretty vicious. Now, um, you, you're working on this thing called the Guardian Dog Project, yeah. um, which works on particular sheepdogs as as Guardians yeah. and, and Jen knows the name of them. Marimas. Very nice. Oh, um, nice pronunciation, Jen. Yeah, oh, that's why I didn't even bother trying. She's, she's all over it. Um, now, this it's it's interesting when people think you know foxes and so forth. Yeah. And they, uh, you know, brought these things to a point of extinction, and now we're talking about a, ver- a very different large animal as the protector. How does how does this work? It is an it, it's kind of a crazy idea, isn't it? Mm. To introduce a 
a, a, a feral species in, as such, an apex predator, to be able to save a marsupial, a, a mammal yeah, from yeah, Australia. Yeah. Like it's 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 a little bit crazy. But the interesting thing is, and, and it's interesting that you touched on genetic diversity before, because part of the re- part of the the reason that guardian dogs could be such a great answer for this species is getting the species beyond fences. So, mm-hmm. the, so the Eastern Wild Bandicoot is at a stage now where we've got 400 animals. Fences have recovered, this, have got the species to where they are now, but to achieve recovery, we need to get them beyond fences. Yep. Yep. To get them beyond fences, we need to think outside of the fence, outside of the box. Yep. And guardian dogs is an idea that came to us. Uh, partly, it was inspired by a project down at Middle Island near Warrnambool, where there was a penguin population there that were being smashed by foxes. Okay. So they'd been reduced to less than 10 animals. Um, that was seven years ago. They introduced two dogs, two specially trained guardian dogs. So these are not your average everyday dog. Yeah, right. yep. And then, and you mentioned sheepdog before. They're not a sheepdog either. Right. But I mean, that's their title. But when we yeah. think of when we think of sheepdog, we think of a kelpie. You know, mm, yeah, yeah. Um, these guys guard. They protect, and that penguin population has now increased to 180 animals down wow. there. So they, those guys have been great inspiration for us. We because we look at it and we go, well, if they can protect penguins, why can't they protect a species like the eastern barred bandicoot? Hmm. So how do you train a dog that? Okay, sure, it's really nice to call it a guardian dog, but essentially still a dog that's going to yep. like to eat meat. How do you train it not to eat a really tasty little bandicoot? Yeah, I was. Well, they, it's interesting. They don't have a large prey drive. So there's, they're a breed of dog that has a, lo, a naturally low prey drive. If you wanted to, you could train it actually to chase down bandicoots and eat bandicoots if you want. You, know, you could train it to attack and something, but it's not naturally going to want to or need to. They have a natural aversion to um, other predators especially other canids like foxes but for us it's all about conditioning so mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. it's about introducing so for us we'll, we'll get our working dogs very soon uh so we're going to get six working dogs all together and for us it's going to be about introducing them to bandicoots as soon as possible so you know from from less than eight weeks old they're going to be sleeping in bandicoot nests smelling bandicoot poo smelling bandicoot wee and then eventually you know at, at around eight weeks old they'll get to really gently really Really, one step at a time, meet bandicoots, mm. and that is the way that we're going to be able to get them to form I, a I bond. Have to, I have to say, you guys have got to document this because this could take shows like Meerkat Manor and just <laughs> dump them in the lake, frankly, because it just sounds amazing. I mean, Australia is one of those countries where we we train dogs to do so many extraordinary things. I mean, you know, whether they are helping people who are visually impaired or they're sniffing out shit at the airport. I mean, mm. we we do some amazing training of dogs uh, in Australia, which is, I have to say, I've not seen anywhere else in the world to the level that we do it. Mm. And this is a, this is another step again, and and if you're, a, I, I just love you know the, the cartoon possibilities here are amazing you know with the the bandicoot with the his pimp I mean dog protector you know walking up to the fox anyway <laughs> Dr Ray um, are there any implications of introducing a dog that to other species yeah other than the bandicoot. Yeah, I, I think so. And and that's the exciting thing for us is, you know, this is stage one. This is a trial, so that's probably pretty important to point out, is that we're going to have a trial at three sites with the Eastern Barred Bandicoot as the subject. But then beyond that, I mean, the the list is endless. When you think about the impact that foxes have had on our, you know, small to medium-sized mammals, the, the, the applications on a broader scale are huge, especially when you combine the conservation of local wildlife with the application 
with the with uh, the, the implications for agriculture as well. Because I have to ask a question about yeah. foxes. Yeah, uh, do they have a, pred- a predator above them in the system at the no. moment, other than us? No. Oh, see, that's a no. problem, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Mm. That's can why we... we're trying to bring back dingoes. Yeah, or yeah. sharks. Yeah. Sharks yeah. that can go on land. <laughs> I'm interested in whether you can um, train a marema to distinguish between a bandicoot and a rabbit, or will rabbits end up being inadvertently protected when we don't actually want them to yes. be? Yes, this is a good point. So this is something that comes up occasionally, and it's something that that we'll definitely be watching really closely in the trials. So because essentially the way that the, the dogs work is territory exclusion is primarily how they work. So they will, through intimidation, through barking, they will form a territory and keep predators out of that territory, reserving space for the bandicoots. So, yeah, in effect, what sort of impact is that going to have on rabbit numbers? We don't know. Um, so it's something that we're going to be watching really closely because it's something that sort of does come up occasionally. Um, but, yeah, we don't know. We don't know. Very but exciting. But uh, guardian dog experts say that you can. You know, we've been working with Australia's leading guardian dog expert, Linda Van Bommel, and she tells us you can get a guardian dog to distinguish between yeah. rabbits and bandicoots. Well, we know how smart dogs are. That yeah. doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. So just finally, Ben, in terms of time frame, how long do you think think it will take to train uh, say one of these dogs up to be able to do this job two years two so years, yeah right. mm. so it's 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 going to be a pretty intensive two-year uh training program we've we've actually got our ambassador dog Alice, um and so he's he's living at werribee open range zoo where the yep. program is based um and he's incredibly cute he's uh and and then uh following that we're going to get two more later this year and they'll start their training pro- uh, training process and then in two years they'll be ready in the field mm. ready Look, to go it just sounds bloody extraordinary i have to say it's one of the most exciting sort of programs it's i just really i just love the way you're using one anim- animal to protect another against the third which is just you know not uh, not something you hear about a lot so good luck with it um you'll have to keep us uh, posted as to how it's going we want to want to see how this is going and, and whether or not that fence can be at some stage taken down and really expand that population ben sanders thanks so much for coming in thanks for having me ben sanders is the wildlife conservation officer down at zoos victoria and doing some great work there on the eastern barred bandicoot three triple You are listening to 3 Triple R. It's on Stone to Go Go Time. We're joined in the studio now by our second guest for today. It's Dr. Katie Mack. She's a postdoctoral research fellow from the School of Physics at the University of Melbourne and has been on the show several times before. Welcome back, Katie. Thank you. It's good to be here. Now, we always end up talking about dark matter when you're here. I guess we can't talk about anything else. Cause we could talk about other things. <laughs> we could, <laughs> but you know so much about it. Um, it would be such a, you know, I've been bagging out dark matter for years because you just haven't found it yet. But, <laughs> but Let's get into that. Let's. I want you first to give us um, just a quick rundown of why we need the concept of dark matter in cosmology and astronomy. Okay, so we know that um, basically from looking at the way galaxies move, the way stars move, looking at the shape of the universe in general, we know that most of the matter in the universe is something we can't see. So we, we know this by looking at how galaxies rotate and we see the stars moving around the centers of galaxies and they're just moving way too fast. So there must be something that we don't see that's holding them in with gravity. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of, one of the lines of evidence. There are a whole bunch of other things that show us that there's just more mass in the universe than what we can see. And so we know that there's some kind of invisible matter we call it dark matter uh it makes up 80 or 85 percent of the total matter in the universe and 
it seems to not really interact with electromagnetism. So it doesn't interact with light, and you can't touch it, because when you touch something, that's really the sort of electric repulsion between the electrons in your hand and whatever you're touching. So dark matter doesn't seem to do that, and so it can pass through things. And so right now, there's probably dark matter passing through this room, passing through us. But but obviously gravity is something that it does exert. Yeah, so so it does gravity, but it doesn't do uh, electromagnetism. It probably does the weak nuclear force, but not the strong nuclear force. So it's some kind of... We think it's probably some kind of new fundamental particle that Mm. is just very, very hard to detect. So why is it when we do something like send the Voyager 1 and 2 probes on such a a long distance, you know, Mm. through through the solar system, way now out of the solar system, beyond the the border of our solar system, you know, as it's called, the heliosheath, I think, helio... Heliopause. Yep. Jeez, um, <laughs> ripping out these big ones. He looked really um, nervous there for I a did, second. I did. <laughs> yeah, didn't have my weak picks. Um, but uh, w- when we do that, obviously this is a very specific course we send that. Why doesn't it feel the gravitational effects of dark matter in our own solar system? Well, there's just not that much dark matter in our solar system. So when you look at the density of regular matter versus the density of dark matter, mm-hmm. on really large scales, there's a lot more dark matter. But on small scales, you know, um, the the sun, the planets, these are very dense things. The solar system is not very big. And so there's there's just not very much dark matter around. Um, it's It's dominant on large scales. The spaces between the stars are very big. And so on those kinds of scales, there's much more... Dark matter, dark mm. matter is, is the dominant thing, but on the scale of the solar system, it just the sun and the and the planets have much more gravity, gravitational effect on something like a space probe. Space probe. So can't see it, can't yeah. touch it. Yeah. How are we going to find it? Well, we're trying a number of a number of things. Um, the one of the things you can do is try and build a particle detector, put it deep underground, and wait for some of those really, really rare interactions between dark matter and regular matter through, like, the weak force, for instance. So it's a lot like trying to find neutrinos. Mm-hmm. So there are neutrino detectors that are looking for these, for those tiny uh, fundamental particles, wait, and they do, do those by putting a detector way down underground and trying to shield from all the cosmic rays and stuff. You do a similar thing with dark matter. You, you put a detector deep underground, and you just wait for a dark matter particle to bounce off of something in your detector and it's really it's a really rare event it's really hard to find because there's a lot of other uh things going on i mean just radioactivity within the walls of the mine that you put the thing in can be a really big problem so that's one of the one of the ways that we do it another way is that uh, we look for signs in space of dark matter particle physics happening so two dark matter particles when they hit each other might annihilate and form some kind of radiation or some kind of uh, other particle that we could see. And so if that happens, if dark matter annihilation is a thing that that occurs in the universe, then we should be able to see signs of that in places where there's a lot of dark matter. So the galactic center, the centers of other galaxies, things like that. So we look for those kinds of signals as well. Now, you have a plan to build some sort of uh, monstrosity here in Victoria. (laughs) Please please tell me it's in a mine in Bendigo. It's not in Bendigo. It's in Stahl. It's oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, now tell, us, tell us about this experiment that you're hoping to build. Okay, so there's um, there's this gold mine in, in Victoria, in, in Stahl, and um, 
a year or two ago, uh, I got an email from one of the people running the gold mine saying that they read an article in The Economist about trying to do underground detectors, uh, underground dark matter detection, and I was quoted in that article. So he sent me this email saying, so I have this gold mine. <laughs> <laughs> as, as you do? Yeah. I got five I ask, of them. Is it still called a gold mine if there's no gold left? Um, or is it just it, a mine? Well, they are still working on They're still getting some of the gold Getting out trinkets of it, so out? It's yeah. Not, it's not entirely empty. But so I didn't really know what to do with this, but I passed it on to some colleagues and, and now the um the plan is to work with uh work with that company and to collaborate with some people in uh Italy and in Princeton to uh put together this big collaboration and do a dark matter detector here uh in Victoria. And the reason it's it's really important actually is because there are no other dark matter detectors in the southern hemisphere. Mm-hmm. And one of the most persistent possible sig- signals of dark matter from other detectors is this detector in Italy called the Dama Libra experiment, where they see, they, they don't know exactly what they're seeing because it's one of these experiments where it's very hard to take out the background radiation of this, whatever other signals are happening. But they see that whatever the signal is, it's a little bit higher in the summer and a little bit lower in the winter. And this is something that could be due to the fact that we're on a planet that's circling the sun and the sun is going through this cloud of dark matter. And so sometimes we're going into the wind of the dark matter and sometimes we're going away from the wind. And so you'd, you'd expect to see a little bit higher signal in summer than in winter. But there are a lot of things that Happen vary seasonally. That yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, even the neutrinos. Like, like the seasons. Yeah, the seasons, right. Yeah, even the yeah. neutrinos. Neutrinos have a different yeah. rate during the summer and the winter because of the size of our atmosphere and what they're interacting with. And so there are a lot of ways that you could have more signal in summer than in winter. Mm. But if you do the same experiment in the southern hemisphere, then you flip the seasons, but the dark matter signal should be the same. Right. And so if we do the same experiment in the southern hemisphere and we see more in the winter than in the summer, then that suggests that maybe it could be dark matter. But if we see more of a signal in the summer than the winter, then it's something terrestrial. Mm. And so, so, so have you have you got money for this now? We've we've We're just applying? been yeah we've just been. Um, Gotten a commitment from the Victorian government for, I think it's one point seven five million dollars. So we're we're on our way, and we've we've submitted a proposal for a linkage project to to the ARC, which will be a, it's a sort of linking with industries mm. project, and that's we haven't heard yet about that, but we've got good sort of good report, feedback, yep. good did, feedback. Did, did the grant start off with the line? My industry partner is a gold mine. <laughs> it, it wasn't exa- explicitly said that way, but that was... It was in there? Yeah, that, yeah. Was, that was the kind of, you know, we, we have a gold mine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like. yeah, that doesn't produce gold. <laughs> yeah. We're not getting funny. Look, it sounds absolutely fabulous, fabulous that um, this would happen in Victoria. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've got the synchrotron. We've got some cool stuff here. But the dark matter detection experiment, you know, to, to give those Italians a run for their money um, would be fabulous. Well, well, we'll be actually partnering with with some groups in Italy where they're going to do we're going to do two exactly the same experiments yep. one in Italy and one here to try to ch- test that other experiment. Yeah. Look, it sounds great. Yeah. Katie, thanks so much for coming in. I Thank will for watch me. for the uh, the corn chip trucks that head towards stall to feed those <laughs> uh, lonely particle physicists that are going to sit there watching for the Oh, there's one. <laughs> yeah, haven't seen frequently. Yeah. Um, hopefully this will, I mean, it sounds like you're already well on the way to getting it going. So we'll get yeah, an update yeah. from you maybe in six months. And, okay, um, sounds good. Unless you find the dark matter before then. 
which would be cool. That would be great. That would be very cool. Thanks for coming in. Dr. Katie Mack is a postdoctoral research fellow at the, in the School of Physics at the University of Melbourne and on the uh, hunt for dark matter, and I will take back all the negative things I've said about dark matter over the years if she finds it guaranteed <laughs> within seconds. 102.7. You are listening to 3 Triple R now, folks. Uh, if you are a scientist, especially a physicist, uh, we need you. Um, there's a program called the Growing Tall Poppies Science Partnership Program, which is supported by the Australian government. And uh, last year, um, they had 10 secondary school students who are very passionate about science and maths in their first crop of what's called the Victorian Junior Tall Poppies. And their role is to promote science and maths in their school community and to increase the uptake of science, especially physics and maths, in year 12. And... What is needed is more mentors for um, these students as we uh, get more and more involved. Um, this is a program that's supported by the Growing Tall Poppies team, so if you want to become one of these mentors, you wouldn't be alone. There'd be a lot of support for it. In particular, they are looking for physicists and mathematicians, but basically any scientists um, to do some great outreach programs and make a real difference in terms of getting science uh, science into schools and, and students interested in schools. So if you would like more information about this program, you think you might be one of these uh, budding mentors in the making, then have a look on Facebook. There is a Growing Tall Poppies Science Program page. Liv will no doubt be tweeting this via our Twitter feed as well, or you can email Growing Growing Tall Poppies, or one word, growingtallpoppies at gmail.com. Definitely worth a look. Now, we are joined by our third guest for today. Luisa De Pietro is the group leader for the Genetic Support Network of Victoria part of the Victorian Clinical Genetic Services down at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Welcome, Louisa. How are you? Thank you, Sean. I'm very well, thank you. Now, uh, you work in an area which I have to say, I, I was really fascinated to read um, that we're, we're not as across this as we, we thought we should be, but in terms of um, the work done uh, to support people who are impacted by genetic and rare diseases, I mean, obviously these diseases are rare, many of them, but can you give us an idea of just how many sort of Victorians or Melburnians are affected by these sorts of conditions? A very interesting question. So uh, collectively rare diseases in Australia uh, constitute a very big portion of our health budget. So yep. in Australia, Shane, there's all sorts of definitions um, uh, in terms of what constitutes a rare disease. But in Australia, we say one in 10,000 people. Mm-hmm. And we say um, that collectively that affects about one in 2,000 mm-hmm. people. Okay. But rare diseases constitute about six to 10% of, um, or affect 6 to 10% of our population. So we know that there's about 8,000 rare diseases. Mm-hmm. So collectively, that's a very, very big portion of our health consumers. Mm-hmm. So it's that collective figure that we're yep. really interested in. In Victoria, I haven't got the figures to yep, break no, it down, yep. um, but we know that um, rare diseases are because of the benefit of new technologies and that we're able to put labels on what mm. were previously undiagnosed conditions. We know that health consumers are uh, in the rare category um, more increasingly. Mm. Uh, earlier in uh, radiotherapy, the show before ours, they were talking about certain conditions and the period before a diagnosis is made. I can imagine that part of that big impact on the health system is that the period for some of the diagnosis for some of these diseases would be quite protracted compared to other things. Is that, is that right? Mm. Absolutely. So um, that's very intuitive of you, Shane, to pick up on that, that uh, anxious wait period. Right. So when we talk about rare diseases, and we talk about genetic conditions because a rare disease is something that is defined as either a disorder, a syndrome,
syndrome or a disease, mm-hmm. but 80% of rare diseases are classified as genetic. So it's the screening, testing and diagnostic phase that we're very interested in in terms of the psychosocial support for people. And it's during the testing, screening and diagnostic phase that we see lots of anxiety and we see a very, very big um, demand on the health system. And that's the bit uh, that we're concerned about because we've got wait lists in Australia for diagnostics and testing that it just, mm. um, just, you know, at blowing us out of the water in terms of what we can cope with. So services like ours are available to um, uh, to cope and, I guess, address some of that um, anxious wait period and to allow people the opportunity to uh, seek some extra support, some counselling um, and ask questions outside of a clinical service. So, yes... Testing diagnostics and uh, receiving um, the information that people want can be very protracted. Mm. Now, you're based down on the children's Melbourne Children's Campus, but presumably this um, genetic support network is not just for kids, it's for, for all Victorians, is that right? Absolutely. It's a whole-of-life service, mm-hmm. and um, when we talk about support for a genetic condition, we talk about whole-of-life stages, anything from prenatal all the way up to adult-onset conditions. Mm. So we support all Victorians, regardless of age. But what's interesting about our work is that we operate within a centre of excellence and a paediatric um, uh, environment. But the Victorian Clinical Genetic Services provides testing, screening and diagnostics for people at all ages. But it's families mm-hmm. that we're more, more concerned about. Well, obviously with the genetic element of that. Now, I, I want to talk a little bit about that, the genetics, because it, we are moving into that space where we can do a lot of very cheap and very rapid genetic testing these days. And we're probably finding a lot of things Things that in many people don't end up being something they will end up uh, developing as a condition. Huntington's and other other diseases, for example, they may you know maybe a long time before they they get there. In terms of the support when people come through genetic testings, I mean, what exactly does that mean? What do you how do you, how do you counsel patients and families that where, where one member may have a genetic condition? So there's a very important uh, professional area in terms of genetics and, and uh, services provided to people who are going through genetic testing, and it's called genetic counselling. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a discipline that's designed to support the science, but it also has a real um, uh, psychosocial component to it too. And it's a um, it's a it's a very interesting profession because it's not provided all over the world, but in Australia, uh, we deliver genetic counselling as part of our best practice in clinical services. So it's extremely important. So it's genetic counselling that will provide that support. In terms of the Genetic Support Network of Victoria, we're there to, I guess, uh, fill in some of the gaps. So uh, families and individuals can ask questions outside of the clinical service and feel that there is no uh, bias or there won't be any uh, ramifications in terms of the service that they will get. A lot of people do feel uh, reluctant to ask questions outside of their um, uh, away from their doctor or in any other environments so I guess in a way ours is a is an opportunity to address it and have a conversation mm. about what their anxieties are about. Mm. Louisa you said before that there are sort of 8,000-ish different um, rare diseases that we're talking about so obviously for any family who's tackling this you know there could be an immense array of different symptoms prognoses you know the the picture could be incredibly different do you find that that means that the sort of services and support you need to provide is also very different or does it actually come down to just everyone is dealing with fear and anxiety and needs the the same kind of help very good question and i think in the end if you were really to deduce this down and say okay what are the core issues it really is that 
anxious, that anxiety, um, and it's anxiety about information that could be bad mm. or, uh, or could be good. Mm. So the delivery of bad news is a very big part of what we do. But let's not forget that in the rare disease space, we're also talking a lot about undiagnosed conditions. So we have the benefit of incredible technologies at the moment, at the moment, and genomics is offering us a lot of answers in terms of being able to sequence a whole human genome and then look at the cause for different things, particularly when we're looking for syndrome diagnosis in children mm. in paediatrics. But there's a very big portion of the rare disease community that are undiagnosed. Mm. That's, that's extraordinary. I mean, the, the, the social impact of that is just extraordinary. And, and unless you've been someone, I think, who's gone through that period of, you know, no, I, I don't have a necessarily a mental illness or whatever. I may have a physical condition that, that can be potentially treated with drugs. Um, you know, this is a very difficult um, problem for, you know, the number of times that people roll out anxiety as an answer clinically, I think is very concerning. And, and, and disproportionate. Absolutely. And, you know, we're, we're talking about a, a very important area of medicine. We're talking about, particularly in the early stages of life with paediatrics, we're talking about an assessment of your child in terms of uh, their, their normality. Mm. And in trying to come up with a diagnosis if there are obvious things wrong, sometimes that will include an examination of how the child looks or a dysmorphic yeah. examination. And that is an extremely difficult part of the diagnostic process for families. Mm. So offering a lot of support in that area is very important. Clinical geneticists are very good at what they do and they're very good in terms of dealing with the sensitivities around that, but it is definitely a part of the diagnostic process. It's very, mm. very difficult and we hear a lot about that. Now, Louisa, we're out of time, but I just want to quickly allow you to mention that Rare Disease Day is coming up on the 28th of February. Um, can people get more information about that from Absolutely. Yep. If people go to um, www.g snv.org.au there's information on an open invitation to all Victorians to attend an event at the Royal Children's Hospital. Uh, February 28 every year marks International Rare Disease Day mm -hmm. and that's a real collaboration uh, all over the world between families, clinicians and the science. Yeah, look it's fabulous and I think uh, the more awareness there is the better as we mentioned the, the social lag that's occurring around this is problematic and we need to get that up to speed uh, Louisa, thanks so much for coming in today and um, good luck with Red Disease Day on the 28th of Feb. You're welcome. Thank you, Shane. Louisa DiPietro is a group leader down at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute for the Genetic Support Network of Victoria and the Victorian Clinical uh, Genetic Services. Um, we are pretty much out of time. Dr. Ray, thanks so much for uh, coming in. Pleasure. Nice to see you. First yeah. time of the year. Yeah, is it yeah. the first time of the year? Jeez, yeah. I guess this is only our third show of the year. Yeah. It feels like we're halfway through. <laughs> and Dr. Jen? Always a pleasure to be in here. Yeah, good to see you. Now, we're going to have to hand over to the team from Eat It. They're over there cooking up a storm. Cam and Matt Stedman are ready to go, I think. I'm trying to get Matt. Yeah, he's waving. He's good <laughs> to go. Up. He's giving me the thumbs up. I can hand over to him. Folks, thanks for listening to another hour of science with us. Uh, we are going to hand over now to Eat It. Just remember, science is everywhere, except in parts of Canberra. But uh, <laughs> hey, what can you do? Enjoy your weekend. We'll speak to you again next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.